The book consists of three parts. Part one is entitled Establishing a Framework. And I think it's one of the strengths of this book that a framework is given to us for practicing church discipline. The scriptures provide a framework, but one of the strengths will be that Lehman insists that we need to exercise much wisdom in discipline too. So establishing a framework. Part two is applying the framework. And there's a whole, I don't know how many, a number of case studies that are presented and, and they're helpful. He, he talks about I think experiences that he himself has had as a minister, and he also talks about experiences that he knows others have had as ministers, um, church discipline issues. And he, of course, conceals the, the names and, and the specifics of it, but he sets forth these case studies to help churches uh, to better know how to apply church discipline with wisdom. Um, I, I think it's a helpful section. I've gained a lot of um, help and insight from picking up the telephone and calling other pastors in our association and just saying, hey, have you ever experienced anything like this? And do you have any advice to offer to me? I'll, I'll call other seasoned ministers, some more seasoned than, than I. And I've been greatly helped by kind of their, their stories. You know, we, we have experienced this or that, and here's how we dealt with it, and here's what we've learned. We could have done better in this or that regard. So some of that is presented to us in this book, in, in writing, and I think it's helpful. We won't cover any of those uh, this morning. And then part three is entitled, Getting Started. And I think what Nine Marks Ministries is doing is, is trying to promote healthy churches, of course. And so therefore, they know some of their, their readers, some of the pastors who are reading their books, or some of the church members who are reading these books, they would have never practiced discipline before, and they need to know how to get started. And so two points are made here. Before you discipline, teach. You need to teach the congregation what the Bible says about this subject. And before you discipline, organize. And here there's an exhortation to get your documents in order. Make sure your constitution or your bylaws, whatever you call them, are are tight um, as a church. It's very important that these things be clearly stated, that the framework be established in writing so that there's clarity for everybody, you know, in terms of how exactly the church is going to operate in this regard. So a very helpful broad structure to this book, I think. We're going to focus on part one in this lesson, and we're going to focus in particularly on a few aspects of it. Uh, part one uh, section 1 is the biblical basis of discipline. Uh, Dever does a pretty good job of establishing that in his book, and we've already gone over it, so we need not go over um, what Lehman has to say here. He might be a bit more thorough in his book because it's a book-length treatment on this subject, but here he deals with the various scripture texts that deal with the topic of discipline. Matthew 18 is indeed very important. It's, it's primary but there are other passages that need to be taken into consideration also, and we've talked about that in the last two lessons. Part 2 establishes a gospel framework for understanding discipline, and we're going to hone in upon that idea that this, is, that this, this needs to be done with the gospel ever in mind. Uh, we, we, need to, we need to keep the gospel in mind. We need to know what the gospel is. We also need to know about uh, what the church is, what the nature of the church is. Um, we need to know what the Christian life is about uh, and the gospel implications that come to the believer. Um, we've done a lot of talk about this too, haven't we? In, in our study on the Nine Marks, through the Nine Marks book, but also in, a, in those sermon series that I've offered to you on the church's temple. We've talked about the nature of the church and how the church is to be distinct from the world. All of these 
rather basic biblical concepts are essential to doing church discipline well. If you don't have those foundations laid, you're not going to be able to understand discipline, nor are you going to be able to implement discipline in a healthy way. Part three asks the question, when is discipline necessary? So, uh, yes, there is a sense in which discipline is always taking place within the church in that formative way as we exhort one another in Christ Jesus, as we encourage one another. Uh, But when is public discipline necessary? When is public rebuke necessary, even excommunication? Um, That's a difficult question to answer sometimes, and I think Lehman does a very good job at at, um, walking us through that. How does a church practice discipline is the fourth section in part one. Uh, So what are some of the mechanics here? How is this to be done? And then how does restoration work? Uh, We should remember that the aim of discipline is always restoration. So even in the case where a church has to excommunicate one of their members because they have contradicted their profession of faith so badly that the church can no longer vouch for them as being a brother or sister in Christ, even even then the goal is still restoration. We we pray that the person would repent, come to their senses, that the the flesh would be destroyed as it were, so that the soul might be uh, saved. And so we have to think through the question of restoration. How should that be done? It's a very helpful section there on, on that subject. So you can see what I'm doing. I'm giving you a very broad overview of what is dealt with in this book. You're, you're going to have to read it for yourselves to, to get the, the fullness of it. I wanted to focus on four things that I thought were particularly strong, four strengths of this book. And uh, that's what we'll do in the remainder of our time together. Uh, first of all, I think the book is strong in its acknowledgement that Matthew 18 is not the only scripture text on discipline. Matthew 18 is not the only scripture text on discipline. Uh, this is a very important observation to make, and, and Lehman really handles it well. Uh, he says in the introduction to his book on pages 17 and 18, Works on discipline from writers in our day typically walk readers through the judicial steps Jesus laid out in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. Matthew 18 is treated, I might add, often or sometimes treated as a catch-all. And then he says, I hope to establish a theological framework that accounts for the variety of approaches that the, scriptures, the scriptural authors themselves take. For instance, Paul has a different approach in 1 Corinthians 5 than Jesus does in Matthew 18. Paul simply tells the church to exclude the sinner with no mention of a warning, and then he just asks the question, why? He'll return to that question later in his book and give, I think, a very good answer, and we'll come back to it here. But I'm just noting that this is a strength. It does not treat Matthew 18 as as if it's the only text on discipline. It certainly is an important one, perhaps the most important one. It establishes a framework, but it's not the only one. Um, I might make a little uh, note here that you, you've heard me talk more and more about the um, the problem of biblicism, right? I keep bringing that up, and I think I keep bringing it up to you because I'm growing more and more aware of how big of a problem it is, and. So please forgive me if, I, if, it's, if it's redundant, but I think we do have another instance here of, of the problem of biblicism. The biblicist might look at Matthew 18 and say, See, this text says that whenever we do discipline, it has to be done in this way. 
And so, therefore, there's no exceptions. You know, it, it always has to involve these steps. Go to the brother or sister one-on-one -on -one and then take another with you. And if they will not listen to the two or three, uh, tell it to the church. And if they will not t listen to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile tax collector or a sinner. So, the Bible says it. Jesus said it. Matthew 18 says it. Therefore, we're bound to always follow uh, this, this model. There are no exceptions. That really is a biblicistic error. Does anyone want to respond to me right now and, and, and elaborate on that? Why is that a, a, a biblicistic error? Anyone? Well, I think in the First Corinthians 5 point, the church knew about the sin already. The guy was pretty arrogant about it. He was, he was well known, so there's no point to go through the steps. It was time to just get him out. Yes, so you go to 1 Corinthians 5, you see there's something else going on here that doesn't quite fit the scenario of Matthew 18. It's not a personal or private offense that needs to be dealt with first personally and privately. The sin of 1 Corinthians 5 is very public, it's widely known, there's no repentance, it's heinous sin. All these things combined lead Paul to say, it's time to deal with this man and to do it quickly and to not follow those steps. So the era of Biblicism says... Well, if this text says it, then that's all there is to it, right? Um, it ignores other passages that speak to the same issue, and it has kind of this rigid approach, where, whereas I think we need to have more of a theological approach to the Scriptures to say, okay, what does this text say? But are there other texts that might add more richness to our understanding of this topic? And indeed there are. And what you end up identifying is, is principles that need to be applied. This, yes, there are frameworks, no doubt, there are guardrails, there are guidelines, but there are also theological principles that undergird all of these passages and bring them together. Uh, that's a bit of a tangent, but I wanted to mention it there. So I think this is a strength. Matthew 18 is not the only scripture text on discipline. We need to acknowledge that too. I think in its insistence that wisdom is needed in dealing with each case, and I particularly appreciated this book um, as, it, as it brought this fact out. On page 21, Lehman says, So often in life... It would be nice to have a rule book that made everything, typo, I apologize, black and white. When faced with this, do that. I'm sure you can um, you know, sympathize with, with that statement. It's true in so many areas of life, right? Don't you wish, parents, that you had a manual like this that just told you, when faced with this, do that. But we don't have a manual like that. The Bible is not written in that kind of way. It, it gives us godly principles. It presents wisdom to us. Uh, yes, there are certain things that parents must do, according to the Scriptures. There are certain things that husbands must do, and wives must do, and pastors, and church members, on and on we can go. In every realm of life, the Bible does speak to us and provide us with guidelines but the Bible is not written like an inst like, like, like instruction manual, you know. Uh, when you're faced with this problem, do that, and the problem will go away. That's not how life works. And um, Deb, um, excuse me, Lehman is noticing that the same is true as it pertains to the question of discipline. We don't have a detailed instruction manual for us. He then goes on to note that fundamentalist religion, in its more abrasive form, seems to be motivated by this desire for clarity. It wants black and whites and places where the Bible is silent. It demands certainty where none is offered. 
And then he asks this question, why would God leave things unclear? Why would he leave things unclear? Or to state it another way, why would God not give his church a detailed instruction manual about what to do in every situation that arises? And he says, my guess is that, among other things, he means for us to cry out for wisdom. Because crying out for wisdom requires naturally self-sufficient people like us to lean on him. And I think, in general, he's right. That's why the Lord does not do that. In fact, life is filled with so many complexities. Uh, Each and every situation that we face is going to be different. It would be impossible to write an instruction manual that would address every possible situation that arises within the family or within the church. It would be inefficient, in fact, to provide that kind of instruction manual to the people of God What does God do instead? He gives us His moral law. He gives us uh, sayings of wisdom in the Proverbs. He gives us general guidelines for our lives in the home and in the church and in society. And then He calls us to develop wisdom in all of these things. Uh, That is how the scriptures are written. Uh, That said, I'm quoting now Lehman, God's Word does provide us with the broad guidelines or framework. Our task is to understand that framework and then sensitively apply it from one situation to another, always walking in trust, always asking for wisdom. So it is important to understand that Lehman is not saying that there are no guidelines for us to follow. We must follow the guidelines of Scripture that are clearly articulated. Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, other texts, those must be obeyed. But they are broad, and there is room for exercising wisdom in between the guardrails that God has set up for us. So I think this is a strength. It's insistence that wisdom is needed in dealing with each case. Thirdly, in its establishment of a gospel framework for understanding and implementing discipline, in its establishment of a gospel framework for understanding and implementing discipline, um, the framework And here I do have a remark about Biblicism again. um, I guess I prepared it uh, to state it at this point. A a Biblicist will, I think, be unable to see this ultimately. Because to have this gospel framework in in our minds, we have to take into consideration all of the texts of Scripture, and we have to see what it is that brings them all together, what the underlying principles are that bring all these texts of Scripture together. Uh, does Does the Bible tell us that the church must be disciplined? Yes. Does the Bible give us guidelines for discipline, let's say, in Matthew 18 and in 1 Corinthians 5? Yes. Are there differences between these texts? Yes. What brings them all together, ultimately we're going to see it's the truth. It's the truth of the gospel that brings them all together. It's the doctrine of the church that must be understood if we're to bring them all together and to practice discipline according to wisdom. So in this section here, he asks the question, what is the gospel? And he walks us through what the gospel is. It's the good news of salvation in, in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that uh, God promised a Savior and the Savior has come. In Him we have the forgiveness of sins. It's also the good news that through faith in Christ and by the working of the Holy Spirit, even before we have faith, there is regeneration that takes place in the heart. And this regeneration that takes place in the heart that is done by God through His Word and by His Spirit It produces a new life in His people. And these people of His are going to be progressively sanctified. They're going to live in more and more obedience to Christ because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit within them. 
You see, the gospel is, is all of that. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins. You've heard me preach this way before. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins. It's about a new life, a new life that begins now, a new life that will be ours in perfection when Christ returns to make, to make all things new. So, you have, you, in order to understand church discipline, you have to understand the gospel. But, so many in our day have reduced the gospel down to what? Well, you can answer that in many ways. Um, does anyone have a thought about that? So many in our day have reduced the gospel down to, to, to what? What comes to mind? Okay, Jesus is love, yes. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Jesus died for your sins. There's a lot of truth in all that has just been said, right? Um, but there's more to be said concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's plan for His people and what He is doing in us. And, and you all know that well. But you could see how the question, what is the gospel, is going to have an impact upon our whole understanding of church discipline, whether or not it's necessary and if we really should do it and how it should be done. So, what is the gospel? Page 37. What is a Christian? Page 38. These are fundamental questions, right? What is a Christian? Um, page 39. What is the local church? What is it exactly? Who belongs to it? Who are the members of, of the churches to be? And we've talked about that quite extensively here at Emmaus in, in the past months. Also, what is church membership? What is church membership? I do love the answer that he gives. Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. And then he says, notice that several elements are present. One, a church body formally, uh, formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible. It promises to give oversight to that individual's discipleship. And then thirdly, the individual formally submits his or her discipleship to the service and authority of this body and its leaders. So this is how Lehman defines church membership. I think he's right. And though it may not have been said to you in this way exactly before, you see these principles in the way that we receive new members, don't you? and in the church covenant that we make with one another as we come into the membership of these, this church. These principles are all there. Church membership is a formal relationship between a local church and a Christian characterized by the church's affirmation and oversight of Christian discipleship and the Christian's submission to living out his or her discipleship in the care of the church. I think that's a very good definition of what it is. Do I need to tell you that this view right here is not popular in our day and age? Do I need to tell you that? You understand this right. There's a lot of professing Christians who are opposed to formal church membership of any kind. But we do see it quite clearly in the pages of the New Testament. Uh, the very first lesson that I teach in the new members class here at Emmaus, there's four classes that I teach. The very first one, I make a case for formal church membership uh, from the scriptures, first of all, but also pragmatically, too. 
Um, I think it is quite clear that in the New Testament, um, this relationship is described where individual Christians are not going to live in isolation. They're going to join themselves to local congregations where there are pastors, where there are deacons who have a special kind of responsibility to care for the members of that congregation. Um, and really the very fact that the scriptures teach uh, that in certain cases members can be excluded from the church through excommunication, does it not uh, strongly imply and in fact necessitate that those same people were formally received into the church at one point in time? I do make that case in that first lesson on in the church membership class here at Emmaus. I, I think um, this is a very important concept. It's a deeply biblical one. Uh, but you will notice that on point one, I'll, I'll state it again, it's letter A on your outline, a church body, body formally affirms an individual's profession of faith and baptism as credible. That's really where church membership begins. If they have not been baptized before, the church affirms their profession of faith and then baptism is applied to them. But as they come in, as new members come in from other churches, and if they've been baptized upon profession of faith, the church also has to take the time somehow to decide whether or not their profession of faith is credible. The elders obviously take the lead in that, but the whole congregation is involved. And that is why we have the members of Emmaus vote to receive uh, new members, because the church has to be involved in it. And in fact, there is an, an agreement that is made. There, there's this commitment that's made. Uh, the individual Christian is committing to join themselves to the local congregation and to be an active part of the body of Christ here. But the local congregation is also committing to provide oversight to that individual's discipleship. Uh, there's, that, there's that covenant, that agreement that is made in church membership. It's a very important thing. Now, I want to read now pages uh, 43 through 45 just to give you a flavor of Lehman's writing and to further develop um, this principle. He says on the bottom of page 43, the preceding discussion on the gospel, the Christian, the church, and church membership provides the framework through which church discipline should be understood. He says, let me draw out four elements from this discussion that provide important foundational assumptions for church discipline. So here are four elements from this discussion that provide important foundational assumptions for church discipline. First of all, an expectation of transformation. The new covenant promises that Christ's people will live transformed lives through the power of the Spirit even if change comes slowly, churches should expect change, that is to say, the visible fruit of God's grace and spirit. Discipline is the right response to a lack of visible fruit, or even more, the presence of bad fruit. So he's saying, think about what we've said about the gospel. Think of what we have said in answer to the question, what is a Christian? Well, the implication of these truths, the truth of the gospel and the, the reality of what a Christian is, is this. We ought to expect that transformation will take place in the life of the believer. The transformation might be very slow. Um, in fact, in the Christian life, there might be periods of progress and, and, and then also periods of, of, of struggle. 
Uh, that's to be expected. Uh, the Christian life does involve struggle against sin, and sometimes we, we fail and we take two steps forward and, and one step back. But if there is no visible fruit of repentance, or worse yet, if there is the presence of bad fruit, then church discipline is about that. For, uh, formatively, members should exhort one another, and even formally, if the sin is unrepented of in a habitual manner. Number two, another foundational principle, the work of representation. Lehman says, Christians are to be little Christs representing Jesus on earth. The concept of representation depends on the idea that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Jesus is Savior and Lord. It depends on the fact that Christians are given a new status and a new work. Discipline is the right response when Christians fail to represent Jesus and show no desire for doing so. You're shielded from this, I know, but there is a very prominent teaching out there that it is possible to have Jesus as Savior and not Lord. Did you know that? Does that sound weird to you? I hope it's weird. I hope it sounds weird to your ears that that it's possible to have him savior as Savior, but maybe not, not so much Lord at first, and then over time he comes to be our Lord. Um, that's what Dever, I'm sorry, Lehman is really addressing here, that no, uh, to have Jesus as Savior is to have him as Lord from the start, even if our sanctification is slow in the beginning and needs to really progress, okay? We represent Christ on earth. God's name is set upon us in the waters of baptism from the very beginning. So the principle or the work of representation is here put before us. Three, the local church's authority is a, a third foundational principle that undergirds the whole idea of di just um, discipline. Jesus gave the local church the authority of the keys to officially affirm and oversee uh, citizens of his kingdom. This mention of the keys, um, it, it's a reference uh, to what Christ said to his disciples in, in that passage on church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. I wasn't planning to go here, but we probably should, if we could do it briefly. Matthew 18, the guidelines are presented to us for how to conduct discipline. It said, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And then in verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and then here we have this famous verse that is often wrenched from its context. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Uh, is it true that when we gather together for prayer meetings in Jesus' name, corporately, that Christ is present with Yes, that's true. But you'll notice that this passage here is about discipline. It's about the practice of church discipline. And then immediately above that in verse 18, there is the talk of loosing and binding um, in heaven from on earth. 
this is referring to the power that the church has to receive people as visible saints into God's kingdom and even to put them out. God works through His church in order to, to receive people into His kingdom and to exclude them through the practice of faithful church discipline. The church has real authority, real spiritual authority. So much could be said to explain what I just mentioned here in passing, but the point is this, the church has real spiritual authority to receive and to put out. It's here in Matthew 18. Uh, it appears in the other texts that um, are mentioned in the New Testament about spiritual discipline. So when Lehman makes reference to the keys, he's referring to this concept here. And it needs to be in our minds, it, it's very uncommon for this to be discussed, I think, in Protestant churches today. Um, churches do not make people Christians, Lehman says. Okay? Churches do not make people Christians. The Spirit does that, but churches have the declarative authority and responsibility for making public statements before the nations about who is and isn't a Christian. Did you hear what he said? That's a very good, very quick explanation of what is meant by the Matthew 18 passage that I just read about binding and loosing. Do churches have the ability to make people Christians? No. God does that through the preaching of the Word of God and by the Holy Spirit. But churches have a real authority. It is a declarative authority. Churches have this responsibility to make public statements before the nations about who is and isn't a Christian. A church's act of excommunication, therefore, does not consist of physically and forcibly removing the individual from its public gatherings, as if the church had to state the state's power of the sword to physically move people's bodies. Rather, it consists of the public statement that it can no longer vouch for an individual citizenship in heaven. Excommunication is a church's declaration that it can no longer affirm that an individual is a Christian. I think that's a very succinct and clear explanation of what is meant by um, what Matthew 18 says, also the statement that was made to Peter about the keys of the kingdom, the local church's authority. Um, maybe a passing remark, real quick. Uh, I don't know how many of you are aware of this, but uh, Pastor Russell um, does teach uh, college-level courses on psychology and Christian counseling. He's teaching now at California Baptist University, teaching a course on, on um, uh, church counseling. And um, he was talking to one of the professors that's been there a long time, someone I had years and years ago, actually. And I guess this professor has this habit of taking polls, uh, surveys from his students at the end of every semester. And he's noticed this trend over the past years that more and more professing Christians will claim this, um, that they can be Christians, but being Christians does not mean that they have to be a part of the local church at all. They, they see no need for the local church in the Christian life. And if I'm not mistaken, this professor was saying that the numbers are creeping up into the 60% range of professing Christians in his classroom saying that they see no real need uh, for, for the local church in the Christian life at all. 
It's a terrible trend. It's so very unbiblical, but also this is rooted in their really disinterest in the Word of God as being inspired too. But we need to see that the local church has real spiritual authority. The fourth thing that um, Lehman mentions is membership as submission. Christians are called, as a matter of obedience to Christ, to submit to the affirmation and oversight of local churches. You'll notice he's not saying the affirmation and oversight of elders. That is true. Elders have the responsibility to lead and to oversee a congregation. They have a special role to play. But he keeps saying things like this, to submit to the affirmation and oversight of local churches. It's an insistence that it's the entire church that's to be involved in all of this, not just the elders. The elders lead. The elders have a special kind of authority within the local church. But the whole church is to be involved in this. When threatened by a possible act of discipline, therefore, church members cannot simply preempt the church's action with a resignation. That would be analogous to an individual resigning his national citizenship before a court could prosecute the criminal activity for which he had been indicted. I think these are very helpful observations here that um, Lehman is making. He's wanting us to see that there just are these biblical principles that undergird the whole idea of, uh, of church discipline that we must be aware of. Explanation of the different approaches uh, commanded by Jesus, Matthew. Okay, so this is um, another thing that I wanted to highlight very quickly. It involves me reading a more lengthy section, and I'll do so without comment. Uh, but I told you that uh, Lehman does not act as if Matthew 18 is the only passage that deals with discipline. He also talks a lot about other passages, including 1 Corinthians 5. And he has a whole section here where he explains the different approaches commanded by Jesus in Matthew 18 and taken by Paul in 1 Corinthians 5. And I wanted to read this section to you because I think it is important. Why different approaches from Jesus and Paul, he asks. I'm going to read rapidly, no comments made, or at least very little. There is one more knotty issue we need to consider concerning when to discipline, and it's a pebble that will start an avalanche of confusion if we're not careful. That's the question of why Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 5 appears to be so different from Jesus' approach in Matthew 18. In 1 Corinthians 5, we recall, Paul rebukes a church for tolerating a sin of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. That's a quote of 1 Corinthians 5, 1. He does not tell the church to warn the man in order to see if he might be brought to repentance. He just tells them to remove the man. There's no testing the waters of repentance. There's no conversation between the man and the elders. There is just a call to immediate action. Quoting 1 Corinthians 5 verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. Jesus, on the other hand, advised churches to offer several warnings along the road to excommunication, each of which present an off-ramp for the process. The temptation is to explain the different approaches by saying that Jesus and Paul have different kinds of sin in mind, which means that we, in turn, should adopt one process or another according to the kind of sin involved. Jesus uses the example of an ordinary interpersonal sin, while Paul uses a heavy-duty sin. We should likewise adopt the former process for the small stuff and, and the latter process for the heavier stuff. Writers on church discipline in the 18th and 19th centuries sometimes went in this direction. They observed two things about the 1 Corinthians 5 episode. First, the sin was publicly scandalous. It was not even tolerated amongst pagans. Second, Paul's call for immediate excommunication, with no warning signs given, suggests that he was not concerned in the short term with whether the man was repentant, again because of the sin's scandalous nature. Jesus' 
reputation was of greater value, and so the church had to act in order to preserve Christ's reputation, even if the individual was, was repentant. Now, Lehman, after talking about this approach that's been common, says, I'm surely sympathetic with the concern for the reputation of Christ, as my entire framework for approaching discipline should make clear, but I don't find this historic explanation compelling for a couple of reasons. For starters, it makes the decision of whether to excommunicate dependent on the standards of the world, which are not holy and are always changing. One society's scandal is another society's badge of honor. Think of abortion or homosexuality. Also, excommunicating people whom a church believes to be repentant would mean handing Christians over to Satan's kingdom. Did you hear that? If a person falls into heinous sin and yet demonstrates true repentance, then would not that excommunicating that person mean that we are handing a Christian, a brother or sister, over to Satan's kingdom? Wouldn't that be unjust to the Christian and dishonest to the world? Churches should not excommunicate people they believe are Christians. Doing so is essentially legalistic because it makes the criteria for church membership not repentance and faith, but repentance, faith, and never committing sin X. Did you hear it? So, who should we receive as members? True Christians, those who have turned from their sins and are trusting in Christ, repentance and faith. Uh, who should be excluded from the church? Those we no longer believe to be true Christians because they've abandoned the faith theologically or they've uh, committed uh, unrepentant sin in such a way that it makes us sure that, or at least quite sure, that their profession of faith is not true so it's about repentance and faith. It's not about repentance, faith, and never committing sin. Acts, I quote Lehman again, Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians surely does open up an exit doorway for us that is not exactly visible in Matthew 18, the doorway of immediate excommunication. And this is indeed a doorway we will use, and this is indeed a doorway we will use most often for the quote-unquote really big sins, but we must remember not to focus exclusively on the heaviness of, of a sin. Remember the decision to move towards excommunication is always about examining the dynamic between the sin and a person's overall posture of repentance. It's not a sin, uh, it, it's not a sin scale that we need. It's not a sin scale that we need. It's a sin versus repentance balance. After all, repentant Christians do sin. The question is always, why would this sin counterbalance our assumption of specific and general repentance? And answering that question always requires us to look at both sides of the balance with pastoral and situational sensitivity. So what are the criteria of immediate excommunication? A more careful examination of 1 Corinthians 5 and 6 will help us find the answer. Consider the following texts, and then he quotes from 1 Corinthians 5 here, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Verse 4. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Verse 9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy, or swindlers, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reveler, drunk, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. 
Verse 12, Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Verse 13, Purge the evil person from among you. Now we come to 6.9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, uh, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So, Lehman takes us not only through 1 Corinthians 5, but also into 1 Corinthians 6. And he says that verses 9 through 11 are very important. Let me continue to read rapidly with the hope of actually making it through this. Uh, the man's sin in 5.1 may be indeed a publicly scandalous or really bad sin, but that's not the point. Rather, Paul is laying out two categories of people in these texts. Those who are characteristically unrepentant, rather, and those who are not. The characteristically repentant belong inside the church. The characteristically unrepentant do not because they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a very important statement right there. And then he moves backwards through the text here on page 59, and I'll, I'll uh, I think, skip that portion for the sake of time. Uh, near to the bottom of 59. It's not difficult to see that Paul means to link the list of chapters 5 and 6 insofar as he lists the same kinds of sins, the sexually immoral, the greedy, the idolaters, the revelers, the drunkards, or the swindlers. We should not assume this is an exhaustive list. Chapter 6 even adds a couple more categories as we compare the lists of chapter 5 and 6. It is instead a typical list. Again, the church must not share fellowship with people who are characteristically unrepentant. I wrote to you, verse 9, in my letter, not to associate with the sexually immoral person, the person who is living a sexually immoral lifestyle in an unrepentant manner. And that's exactly what this man in chapter 5 is, characteristically unrepentant. So he's living this sinful lifestyle. Yes, it is a particularly heinous sin. Paul says, put him out, excommunicate him, hand him over to Satan. Why? Because he is sinning in a heinous way, in a public way, and he and even others in the church are boasting about it. There's no repentance. It's, it's boastful. They're prideful about living uh, this way of life and therefore Paul tells the church to act immediately to hand this man over to Satan. He's characteristically unrepentant. Later on in this um, quote, which is way too long, uh, Lehman notices that Paul's assumptions about the man begin just short of where Jesus' process ends. So there's no need to go through step one and step two and, and, and so on and so forth because the situation is already at step three in Matthew 18. Another difference in the two passages lies in how widely the information is known and agreed upon. The whole church knows about this. There's no need to be private about it from the beginning as Matthew 18 says. That's an important um, uh, observation. The churches must always look at both sides of the sin versus repentance scale. Uh, even when a person's sin seems big, the church still needs to be convinced that the person is characteristically unrepentant before moving forward with discipline. On pages 62 and following, 
through to 65. Uh, Lehman deals with the question of a disqualified uh, profession. He says, here's one more way to view the entire episode of 1 Corinthians 5. There are no doubt some sins that are so deliberate, like a long pattern of abuse or murder, or repugnant, like sexually predatory behavior or extortion, that any quick words of apology would be unbelievable. Did, did you hear what he says? There are some sins that are of such a nature that any just quick word of apology would make it almost unbelievable or, or at least leave the church with great uncertainty. It's almost as if the nature of some sins disables a church, church's ability to continue affirming the person's overall posture of repentance. And so the church has no choice but to remove its affirmation. And then he adds these words, for the time being. And we do have a category about that in our, um, conf- our constitution, by the way, where uh, the elders do have the ability to bar someone from the Lord's table temporarily, to suspend them from the Lord's table. In situations like this, where the nature of the sin is such, where it just, it, it, it just paralyzes the church in a way, in order, as it pertains to continuing to, uh, valid, uh, to, to vouch for their profession of faith. Um, it may be that in some cases the, the church chooses to test this person's repentance not before the act of excommunication, but afterwards. I've skipped over a lot in this quote. I think it's an excellent section. I need to conclude our class for today. I've ran out of time. Um, I probably did bite off more than I could chew here. I, I will let you know there are some books available on the back table. I'd encourage you to read this whole thing. It's a pretty quick and easy read. Uh, the officers of, of Emmaus will be reading through this book and discussing it at our next officers meeting. Um, I will say that I only read it recently. And in some respects, I'm glad that I only read it recently because I think looking back on all of the things we've had to deal with as a church over the, over the years that we've existed the Lord has been gracious to us to guide and direct us to stay within the biblical guidelines and parameters that are provided, but to do so with wisdom and care with each and every situation that has, uh, has presented itself. Uh, may the Lord continue to give us such wisdom. I do apologize for um, biting off more than I can chew, uh, brothers and sisters, and for going over time. Uh, but at the end of the day, I'll say I recommend this book to you. Please read it if you would like to know more about church discipline and also have greater insight into how the elders of this church do approach leading in this matter. Let's close on a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, do help us to be faithful to your word. I pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be faithful and disciplined because we love you, because we love Christ, because we love the bride of Christ, the church that he obtained with his own blood, and because we love one another. Help us to be faithful, to love one another in this way. Uh, give us resolve, give us courage, also give us great wisdom, gentleness, long-suffering. Give us love for one another, so that your name might be exalted here in this place and to the ends of the earth. In the name of Christ we pray these things. Amen.